start with uh, number 330. What I'm going to talk about in this first meeting is dispensationalism and prophecy, how they fit together. You cannot understand prophecy if you do not understand uh, at least some basic principles about dispensationalism. So we're going to talk about that first of all. So this first hymn, what raised the wondrous thought, or who did it suggest, that we the church to glory brought should with the Son be blessed. O God, the thought was thine, thine only it could be, fruit of the wisdom, love divine, peculiar unto thee. So let's start with number 330. What raised the wondrous
God our Father, we thank Thee for it. This time we can be together, speak about those things that are Thy counsels from an eternity past, and uh, the ways Thou hast brought them about too. We thank Thee for the interest in those that have uh, invited us. We pray for each one here that we would be encouraged, and furthermore that there would be that which would rise up to Thee as a sweet savor. Pray for Thy help now, blessed God our Father. We know that without Thy help, uh, these talks will be uh, will just fall to the ground. So we commit ourselves to Thee now, giving Thee thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned, I want to speak about uh, dispensationalism first because that dovetails in with with a prophecy. You cannot understand prophecy if you don't understand dispensationalism. So I mentioned that partly because there's a lot of people that want to tell us about the future. I know we see ads in the paper in our area. There's uh, Seventh-day Adventists that are active in our little community and a number of others. They all want to tell you about the future. But I know that their understanding of dispensationalism is faulty. And therefore, they cannot give a proper outline of prophecy. So we're just going to touch on some of the basics of dispensationalism. <clears throat> this is an interesting slide. Um, Sam was asking me why in the world I'm using this. This is not a travel log. That's true. But I just wanted to mention this to use it as an illustration. I hope you can take it that way. This is uh, uh, Antietam National Battlefield in Western Maryland. Uh, my wife and brother and I had an opportunity to visit there a couple years ago. And the reason I'm bringing it up, a couple things. There's uh, an interesting place. It was one of the two times that uh, General Lee attempted to come north out of the south during the Civil War. And uh, as it turns out, it was the bloodiest one-day battle of the war. 23,000 casualties in one day. And uh, we went there. Here's the cornfield over here. Uh, you, you walk around that area. They have monuments of the different uh, companies and so on and where they came from. One of the monuments was from men that came from Chester County, Pennsylvania, which is nearby. And no doubt some of my relatives were there. My relatives have lived in continuously in Chester County, Pennsylvania since almost the turn of uh, 1700s. So I'm sure there were some there. But many of the people, when they were buried, they had no ways to identify them. There was no dog tags back in those days. And uh, many of the uh, graves, you can imagine, with uh, 23,000 casualties. Not all those were deaths, but there were 23,000 casualties in this one-day battle. Another interesting place is this sunken road. It was a road that had become sunken because of all the wagons that had gone over it over the years. And so it was below. The Confederates first occupied it. And there's actually a tower right nearby there. Uh, I don't see that right here, but there was an observation. There it is, an observation tower, and you can look out over the grounds. The reason I mention that is because in that sunken road, it was a wonderful rifle pit. You can imagine they could be down in there and they could uh, in the road and they could shoot their rifles out. It worked wonderfully until it was breached, and then it was a, a death trap. And so the reason I mention these things, again, I just want to use it for a, a brief illustration the uh, park ranger explained some of these things to us, to a group of us there. And when he came to the end, he said, this is sacred ground. And that was impressed itself on all of us. And there was a sobriety 
uh, that fell over the group there. So we realized that, uh, as somebody said, this is the bloodiest ground in the Western Hemisphere. It's sacred ground, and we should respect it. Well, what we're going to talk about today is a sacred trust. It's not just information. I think sometimes we think that way. It's not just information like we would learn in school. But it's a sacred trust that is given to us as believers. Let's look at that sacred trust a little bit. I want to read in 1 Timothy. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read it in the New Translation because it is a little clearer there. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And verse 20. O Timotheus, keep the entrusted deposit. Avoid profane, vain babblings and oppositions of false name knowledge, of which some having made profession have missed the faith. Grace be with thee. And then the second scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For which cause also I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that for that day the deposit I have entrusted to him. Have an outline of sound words, which words thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Keep by the Holy Spirit, which dwells in us, the good deposit entrusted. Well, I wanted to go over those verses because that's what we're going to speak about. You know that word, uh, I am not ashamed? I often used to think, like perhaps some of the others have at times, that it means that we're ashamed before God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed before men, I should say. Uh, sometimes we are ashamed of the gospel, aren't we? Or we're ashamed of some of these things. But the more I thought about that, I don't believe that's really the emphasis here. It may include that. But I think the emphasis here is Paul says, I'm not going to be ashamed when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because the things that I'm talking about, the, the, the deposit that's been entrusted, Timothy, is going to stand for all eternity. It's a sacred trust. And I hope we can get a hold of that. Um, now, let's look at some other verses. I'd like some help. Uh, some of you young people in Peter's class particularly, Who'd like to look up uh, Luke 10, verse 24 for us? Who would do that for us? Who's going to do that? Okay. And then who, how about somebody look up 2 Peter 1, verses 19 to 21? How about your neighbor there? Can you do that? Okay, and then Mr. Rule here. Would you look up uh, Acts 20, verse 24 to 30? And then we need one more volunteer that will help us with it. Mind looking up for us, uh, Proverbs 8, verses 17 through 21, and we'll have those read to us. I want to bring out some thoughts that I think concern this trust that we're talking about, the sacred trust. All right, Luke 10.24, what does that say? Okay, Luke 10.24, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. All right, thank you. The things we're going to talk about are things that prophets and kings in past ages would have liked to have heard, but they were passed over. And it's been entrusted to us in Christianity 
and especially in our day. Uh, these truths have been recovered in the last years. You know, I've often told the young people in our meeting especially that the privileges of Christianity uh, um, uh, have been entrusted to us. Mr. Hayo, old Mr. Hayo used to say, I only remember seeing him once, old Harry Hayo, Sam, you would remember him, but old Mr. Hayo used to say something to the effect that in Christianity, we have a mountain peak of blessing beyond which God himself could not go. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But the other point I want to make is that uh, not only have these things, these privileges been recovered and these uh, have been uh, entrusted to Christians, but if you look at church history, you'll find that they were not appreciated over most of those years. Outside of perhaps a few in the first century when the scriptures weren't even all written, these things have been recovered only in the last 150 or so years. And so we have a special privilege and responsibility in our day, a special trust. You know, we like to pray for people in persecuted lands, and it's appropriate that we do so. But that's not our calling right now. Our calling is to value the truth that God has recovered. The whole counsel of God, as we're going to see. To me, that's a tremendous truth for tremendous sacred trust. And I hope that you young people, again, that's the main target here. The rest can listen in. But I hope that you young people can get a hold of that. That this is a sacred trust that prophets and kings would have desired to have heard and understood. And it wasn't given to them, but it is given to us. And then it was lost for many, many years. And now it's only been recovered in these last years. And it's more available now than it's ever been. You don't have to have thousands of books in your library. Uh, just in my lifetime, that's changed. Now you can hop on the internet and you can have be exposed to thousands of volumes online. You don't have to have those tremendous libraries anymore. Your library is online. And I hope that you young people will get a hold of that. It's a tremendous... Truth. All right, 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, all right, thank you. Well, that light that shined in a dark place. The Old Testament was a dark book by and large, wasn't it? You know, somebody has said that in the Old Testament, I want to read this here to get it exactly right, but I appreciate it when I read it. In the Old Testament, there was a book of unexplained ceremonies. You read in the book of uh, the Pentateuch, all these ceremonies, what did they mean? Well, the prophets and the kings didn't have any idea what they meant. They were there in scripture, and they valued it, and in fact, the Jews often would memorize that word for word, but uh, they were unexplained. It's a book of unsatisfied longings. You go to the poetic books and you hear all these longings, but they're unsatisfied. The truth hasn't been brought out yet. And it's a book of unfulfilled promises. All the pro prophetic promises in the Old Testament uh, were not fulfilled uh, in the Old Testament. Very few were fulfilled. So it's a book of un unexplained ceremonies and types, a book of unsatisfied longings, a book of unfulfilled promises. It was uh, not until we came to the New Testament that we had that light that shined in a dark place. That's the truth of Christianity that we're speaking about. 
Okay. Acts 20, verses 24 to 30. You might thank you. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I, am not, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all this counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my parting shall grievous wolves enter among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. All right, thank you. There's four things I have noted in my Bible there. The first is that Paul, and here we have an outline. The first thing is that Paul preached the gospel of the grace of God. We're so thankful in the gospel meetings that there is such a thing as the gospel of the grace of God. The second thing that we read about there was he preached the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has to do with right Christian living. Once we're saved, we have the privilege, responsibility of, of living a life that's for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, and this is what we're going to talk about and emphasize today, he spoke about the whole counsel of God. That's what's been recovered in these last days. It was in the scriptures all along. But that's what's been recovered, and that's what I believe all three of those things are critical. But they build on one another. There's very few Christians that understand the whole counsel of God. I didn't uh, talk about it again, but in Second Peter it says to have an outline of sound words. That's what we want to try to cover today is that broad outline. In fact, I'm not going to read a lot of scriptures the reason I'm not reading a lot of scriptures, there is support, I trust, for what we say. I've got some pamphlets I'm going to give out later on that will give support, the scriptural supports for much of what I want to do. But because we want to take this broad overview, we're not going to look at a lot of scriptures now. We're just going to look at the overview. And then I've got a pamphlet that I'll make available that will give a lot of those, uh, more of those details. Okay, one more passage. Proverbs 8. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. Okay, the things we speak about there, it's better than gold, better than silver, better than rubies. It speaks about the treasures. You know, there's a quote that I read from an old poet named Wordsworth. I don't think he was speaking about this, but I'm going to take it out of context a little bit. It says, The key by which we may unlock the chest or casket and take out of its treasures. Well, that's what we want to talk about. And I believe that key, let's go to the next slide, is dispensationalism. That's the secret, really, that gives us the whole counsel of God. And I've often said, I don't know if this figure is accurate or not, but I've often said that just based on my experience with other Christians, that probably 90% of Christians do not understand dispensationalism. It's, it's hidden, sad to say. But this is the key to some of the greatest mysteries 
of the universe, the whole counsel of God, and that's what we're speaking about today. I'm so glad that uh, the young people wanted to get together and those that took the time to do it, but these things are not trivial. Okay, let's look at two scriptures. The first in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I know there's some different uh, uh, thoughts on dispensationalism. I'm going to look at dispensationalism in a conventional way, as they say. Um, and uh, we're going to look at the fundamental principles, which are really quite simple. The details get kind of complicated, but the principles are very simple. Ephesians 1, verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, and whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And I'll read verse 12 too, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Well, perhaps that's the Jew, but nonetheless, we can apply the same principle. So what is this dispensation of the fullness of times? Well, dispensation in the conventional way speaks about administration or the way that God has acted in different times of human history. And uh, we're going to look at that. That's the broad outline we need to lay a hold of. And let's look at the key to that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the very fundamental verse that gives us the broad outline of dispensationalism. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32. Give none offense. Now here's three people groups. Neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles, nor to the Church of God. Those are the three great people groups that define dispensationalism, the three great people groups that are the key to understanding prophecy. All right, let's look at dispensationalism and prophecy a little bit. In the Old Testament, the Jew is addressed, and also the Gentile. And as we go on, we'll look at that in more detail. The church... The teaching of the church, the doctrine of the church, is never found in the Old Testament. Now that we have the New Testament, there are some types. We know, of course, um, the Old Testament has many types of the church once we have the New Testament. But the teaching of the church is never found in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. Hidden God, we're told, in Ephesians. In the New Testament, you have all three. You have the truth of the Jew, the Gentile, and the Church of God. The origin of each is different, the calling of each is different, and the hope of each is different. And we need to understand that. Again, that's the fundamental difference between what we call covenantalism and dispensationalism. Dispensationalism essentially homogenizes the two. But I like the comment that Mr. Kelly makes oftentimes. He says, you know, he says there's profound differences here. What language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. Hebrew. What language is the New Testament written in? Greek. Mr. Kelly says, look, they're tremendously different. You've got one in Hebrew and you've got one in Greek. They're profoundly different. And in fact, he's correct. The church is the uh, emphasis of the New Testament. 
But in the Old Testament, it's the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew and the Gentile are peripheral in the uh, New Testament. So one is in Hebrew, one is in Greek. Don't homogenize them. God is saying thereby that there's profound differences between the two, between what's taught in the Old Testament, what's taught in the New Testament. Now, we might say, and it's important to say, that the, uh, all the scriptures were not written to the, belief, to the Christian. The Old Testament was not written to the Christian. The Christian wasn't even around when the Old Testament was written. The New Testament was written for the, to the Christian. But all of scripture was written for us. Although it wasn't all written to us, it was all written for us. And so we can go back now and get the treasures out of the Old Testament that in type and in fulfillment give us what the key is found in the New Testament. And then we have the treasures that are revealed in the Old Testament because one spirit wrote them all. The spirit of God wrote all the scriptures. It's all one uniform whole. But we need to understand the distinctions. Okay, we talked very quickly about 1 Corinthians 10.32. There's the three people groups. We're going to emphasize this now. Now, Matthew 24 and 25. You remember what that's about? Some of you young people. Jamin? Remember what Matthew 24? It's one of the primary uh, prophecies in the New Testament. I'll give you that hint. Some kind, sometimes called the something discourse on a certain mountain. The Olivet. Olivet Discourse. Thank you. The Olivet Discourse, one of the primary prophecies in the New Testament. The key to the Olivet Discourse is these three people groups. If you read the Olivet Discourse and you don't understand that three different, the three different people groups are addressed, you won't understand the Olivet Discourse. Here's the key. Verses Chapter 24, verses 4 through 44. We're not going to look it up, but make note of it if you want. That addresses the Jew. The Lord's coming in relation to the Jew. And then if we skip over from verse 45 of chapter 24 through verse 30 of chapter 25, it addresses the church, or Christendom. And then beginning in verse 20, 31 of verse of chapter 25 through the end of the chapter, you have the Gentile, remember the sheep and the goats and so on. That addresses the Lord's coming, or his appearing, I should say, really, in that case, in connection with the Gentile. So there's the key to the Olivet Discourse. If we don't understand that, we won't understand the Olivet Discourse. Those three people groups are identified there. All right, how about when we go to Revelation? That's obviously the main prophecy in the New Testament. Again, the key to Revelation is these three people groups. Now I know, of course, the Lord Jesus is the center of all Scripture. Prophecy included, of course, the spirit. Testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's the great theme. I think David's going to go on that a little bit more, and that's the great center. But as far as the counsels of God, here we have these three people groups again. Chapters 2 and 3, we know, is a prophetic history of the church. And then chapter 6 through chapter 11, verse 18, considers the uh, 70th week of Daniel, as we say, or what we call the tribulation period, in connection with what used to be Christendom. By then, all the Christ true Christians are gone. But it's uh, the, uh, the, the uh, a pr a prophecy 
during the 70th week of Daniel, especially, or the tribulation period, we'll talk about that a little bit more, in connection with the Christianized world, what we mainly call the Western, uh, Western world, Western Europe and the United States, perhaps even uh, North America and South America. So there's the key again. You've got that pe those people groups there. You start with verse 19 of chapter 11 through the end of chapter 14. And all of a sudden you hear a lot of Jewish figures. You hear about the Ark of God. You hear about the Temple. You hear about a number of Jewish figures. So there you have a prophecy of the 70th week of Daniel, or the tribulation period, in connection with the Jew. And then you get to chapters 15 and 16, and you can see that again, the, uh, uh, the uh, two chapters uh, speak again to the tribulation period, but this time in connection with the Gentiles. The non-Christianized world, the non-Jewish world, it's the Gentile world. So here's a brief outline of New Testament prophecy. And again, you can see that the key is to understand the dispensational distinctions. Very simple. Uh, dispensationalism can get real, real detailed, but the fundamental principle of dispensationalism, again, is that there's three people groups, and they have different origins. The, the Jew and the Gentile have an earthly origin. The Jew were the people that were especially called of God, the, what, what scripture calls the adoption, and the Gentiles were everybody else. And those are the two people groups that are going to be on the earth after the church is gone. But then uh, the church comes in, and we have a heavenly calling. We're a heavenly people. We have a heavenly hope. The Jews look for the Lord to come and set up the kingdom. The Christian looks for the rapture, what we call the rapture. He's looking, we're looking for the Lord Jesus to take us home and be with him. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Okay, here's a chart that was developed by Charles Stanley. You see, I gave the, I gave the uh, website down here. You can get this chart on the website here. Um, STEM Publishing. Um, STEM Publishing is a, is a website I go to almost every day. I didn't go to it this morning because we were burning rodents, but when I'm at home pretty much every day, I'm on STEM Publishing. And you can find a tremendous library, electronic library, uh, stempublishing.com. This is a, 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 a diagram that Charles Stanley put together, and later I'm going to give you, I have 40 copies of an article that... Uh, includes this diagram and gives some more details and gives the scriptural documentation for these details. Again, we don't have time to go into that. But let's go over this. This to me is a tremendous help in understanding what's happening with dispensationalism and prophecy. Alright, let's just read through it very quickly. This line here is intended to represent the past history of Israel up to the coming and rejection of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so I stands for Israel, and uh, I like to do, if I can uh, manipulate this, which I didn't do here, but I like to put the cross right about here, and I like to put a line here that shows the incarnation when the Lord Jesus came into the world. But this was a momentous time in human history. The Old Testament now is coming to an end. The New Testament begins, as we well know, with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Greek. It's a whole new order of things. So Israel, up until that time, we'll look actually a little bit uh, 
previous to Israel, as we talk a little bit later, but Israel from the time of Abraham in Genesis 11 is the main theme in the Old Testament. But with the incarnation, the Lord Jesus coming into the world, and with the cross, sometimes we speak, we sing about that hymn that says that the cross is the center of two eternities. That's true. <coughs> and so I like to put a little cross here. Mr. Stanley didn't do that, but uh, the cross is the center of two eternities. All past ages look forward to that time. All ages after the cross look back to that time. It's the center of two eternities. Okay, the C now, let's read what it says. The circle represents the present period, the church, during which the church of God is being gathered out of the world. Notice that there's no line through the church. When a Jew becomes a Christian, he's no longer a Jew. I remember reading a, listening to a, a talk, a Jew, a man that had been raised as an Orthodox Jew once. And uh, he said they literally uh, conducted a funeral when he became a Christian. As far as they were concerned, he was dead. They had wanted nothing to do with him anymore. I remember Gordon Hayo speaking about uh, a man who had been a converted Jew. And uh, he tells a story. He was talking to another man who was a Jew. And he said, well, you know Mr. So-and-so, he's a Jew. And the man looked at him and he said, he's not a Jew. He was raised a Jew. His culture was Jewish. But he became a Christian. And as far as they were concerned, he was dead now. He was no longer a Jew. So the uh, Jewish dispensation, in that sense, is terminated for a time when the church comes about. The church period has displaced, for the time at least, the uh, calling of Israel. And we're going to look at that further. Again, these talks, I think, will build on one another. So hopefully uh, we can understand that in more detail as we go on. All right, the next line then, this circle, this is the M, represents the period of the millennium, or kingdom. Millennium simply means thousand years, right? I understand in the Latin Bible, the translation of the Latin Bible in Revelation, rather than the period of the, 20, of the thousand years, it says millennium. So we often use that term millennium, which means a thousand year period. This is the time to which the Jews looked forward. The time when the Lord Jesus would be the king over all the earth and righteousness would reign. That's the millennium. You can see that line starts up again after the church period is over. The Lord takes up Israel, and in Israel, the Gentiles also would be blessed. And so that line picks up again. And the millennium will be a time of tremendous blessing on the earth, and heaven will, of course, share in that as well. Now, I want to make a comment here. I've heard some people say that, you know, I even heard a brother say once in our meeting room in Spokane, he wasn't from Spokane, I won't give that away, but he said, you know, I'm not interested in prophecy. Uh, Bob Baden in our meeting, we have Jan here, but Bob used to love prophecy and used to share things about prophecy with me. But uh, some people, one brother came to our meeting once, we were talking about prophecy a little bit, did you know, I'm not interested in prophecy. It doesn't have anything to do with me. And I often puzzled about that comment because the Christian uh, is very interested in prophecy. Why? First of all, I believe, because it has to do with the honor of Christ. He's going to be exalted. He's going to reign in the world where he was so despised. That's a great reason why we should be interested, isn't it? But I think there's a second reason. And that is that 
As Christians, we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is part of our inheritance. Wouldn't you be interested in your inheritance? So prophecy isn't just something we might have an intellectual interest in, but it's that which is critical to our very future. And so we read, even during the book of Revelation, it talks about the four and twenty elders. That includes the church. It's not limited to the church. But they have an intense interest in what's happening on the earth. And that includes the church. This is our inheritance. We're going to reign over it as the, as the, as the wife of Christ for the thousand years. So we have an intense interest in what's going to happen uh, after we leave. Okay, so the millennium, the thousand year kingdom reign. All right, this short line, what does it say there? I can't read it. A w. Okay, he used a little different term maybe than we would. Um, Mr. Stanley lived during the 19th century. Uh, this is one of the original charts the brethren put out, and I find it very simple and very helpful. But it says this short line, which is right here, the period of judgment betwixt this present period of grace and the millennium. What's another term we give to this short line? You some of you young people. What's the term we would commonly use for that? Tribulation. Tribulation, right. That's the term we commonly use. He's calling it W for wrath. Same, same thought, really. But I think the term we use more commonly, and it is a scriptural term. You find it in, the, in Matthew 24. It talks about, uh, and other places, talks about tribulation. We talk about uh, the two parts of the tribulation. We'll get into that later. But this is approximately a seven-year period. Starts uh, after the church period is over. Uh, perhaps not immediately after. There may be a little gap in there. We'll talk about that. But it's about a seven-year period. That's where we get the 70th week of Daniel, a seven-year period. So that's a tribulation period. We need to understand that. Okay, S, this short line right here, the letting loose of Satan again after the thousand years. After the thousand years, there's going to be Satan has let out of the prison for a short period of time. And he's going to gather a tremendous horde of people. I suppose most that were born during the tribulation, perhaps a few that entered, uh, perhaps, but uh, only feigned obedience to the Lord during that time. And uh, he's going to lead them in an attack on the uh, on the uh, heavenly Jerusalem. So that's a short period of time after the millennium, before the eternal state. And then we have uh, E. There's eternity. The beginning of the circle points to the eternal state when there will be no changes anymore. This upright line, that's A, indicates the ascension of our blessed Lord to heaven at the commencement of this period. So just before the church, the, Lord, the church period, the Lord Jesus went back to heaven. The Spirit of God came down ten days later on the day of Pentecost. And that was the birthday of the church. That's when the church period began, is shortly after the Lord's ascension back to heaven. And then this uh, line shows the taking up of the church to meet the Lord uh, Christ in the air, which closes this period. T, we have another word for that normally. What would that be from you young people? Rapture. The rapture, exactly, yeah. That's the, we would normally call that the rapture. But remember, this is one of the very earliest churches. Uh, those who came before uh, this period, before the 1840s and so on, 
they homogenized the church and Israel. They didn't understand the distinction. They uh, felt that the church inherited the promises of Israel. That's what we call covenantalism in a nutshell. But this chart emphasized the fact that they're fundamentally different. Not only the language is different, but the hope, the origin, the calling, and the hopes are fundamentally different. So the church period ends formally at the rapture, when we're taken home. That's our hope. That's that blessed hope that it speaks about in Titus chapter 2. We're looking forward to that time. Well, then lastly we have, this line shows the glorious appearing, or revelation, or coming of Christ to the earth. He has an R here. Uh, I think normally we would call it the appearing. So the rapture is different from the appearing. The rapture is the taking up of the saints. The appearing is when the Lord Jesus comes back in power and glory to set up his kingdom. Okay, again, I've got a pamphlet on this. I want to hand it out. Uh, I have 40 copies of it. Here's the diagram again. It's a little different. I don't know why they added a separate line. For some reason they added a separate line. I don't know why. But I wanted to talk about uh, dispensational days um, a little bit. Um, there are dispensational days in Scripture that help us understand, again, these different periods, uh, different ways that God dealt with man. There's a Scripture, 1 Corinthians 4, we won't look at it, but you can, here's a reference. In the JMD translation, it talks about man's day. When is man's day? Paul says he was not going to be judged of man's day. Well, I don't know exactly when it began. I puzzled about that some. I rather suspect that it began when Cain left the presence of the Lord and set up this world system. I suspect that's when man's day began. And it continues on. It'll continue on until the Lord Jesus comes in power and glory and sets up the kingdom. This present period is called the day of salvation. There's another dispensational day. Thank God that we live in the day of salvation. Also, it's called the evil day because the church period also coexists with the evil day. Why? Because at the cross, Satan was proved to be the God and prince of this world. And from that time, we realize this world system is an absolute enmity against the person and work of Christ and against his people. So it's the evil day. For us as Christians, it's the day of salvation. But we must understand that this is also the evil day going on during the church period. But what about the tribulation period? What day is that? The day of vengeance of our God, Isaiah 61.2 and other places. It's the day when God will judge this world in righteousness by that man who he hath ordained. It's the uh, judgment the Lord Jesus is going to bring in. It begins during that tribulation period. It's called the day of vengeance of our God. Because this world has rejected the grace of God, which is still extending, and because the world has rejected the grace of God, the only remedy left is for God to bring in judgment as the foundation for this new world order, the millennium. The day of the Lord. That begins when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. It's called the day of the Lord. It's primarily a day of judgment. The day of the Lord. 
He is going to judge in righteousness. It begins when he comes out of heaven. It continues all the way through the millennium. And I suppose in a certain sense it might even go a little beyond when Satan's here. He's going to judge in righteousness. He's going to judge evil. Then we have the uh, day of Christ. That also begins at the same time when the Lord Jesus appears out of heaven. A little different thought, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, etc. It's when the Lord Jesus is revealed with his bride and his people, the heavenly host. Uh, it's going to be a time of revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the day of the Lord is judgment. The day of Christ is a time of, uh, of uh, manifestation. Um, the uh, believers are going to shine forth with him and his glory, not just the Christians, but I think no doubt all believers, all the heavenly hosts, during that thousand year reign and perhaps beyond, the day of Christ. A little different thought. The day of God and the day of eternity both refer to the eternal state when uh, things will be fixed. Okay, I think one more slide. I remember right? Yeah, just one more slide. You didn't speak on my day. Oh, did I mention my day? Okay. Oh, you're right. Okay. The Lord sometimes spoke about my day. And I believe my day is both of these two. Both the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. Abraham looked forward, it says, to my day. The time when the Lord Jesus would be revealed in power and glory, but also the time when he would be manifested with his saints in his glory. My day. So I think it includes both. Thanks, Ben. I think it includes both the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. Okay, last slide. There's also dispensational names of God we have throughout Scripture. I didn't give any scriptures for these. The reason is because they're mentioned multiple times in most cases in Scripture. And let's go over it real quickly. All right, Almighty, that was the name he took with the patriarchs. Uh, what does Almighty mean? It means that he made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was Almighty. He was the powerful one that was going to fulfill his promises, and absolutely he will. In Exodus, we remember that the special name that he took with Israel was that of Jehovah. Remember, he met uh, Moses in the flaming bush, and he proclaimed his name as Jehovah. Now, Jehovah had been a name we had in the early chapters of Genesis. Apparently, it had been lost. But now it became the special name that God takes, the covenant name, we might say, with Israel. Those are those lines again. He made special promises to Israel. Israel had special privileges that are going to be uh, fulfilled, as we know, during the millennium, as we mentioned. And uh, that name he takes with Israel is Jehovah. Lord of all the earth. That's a name he took when Joshua went into the land to subdue the land of Canaan. Uh, it was a picture of the future kingdom. Uh, we know it wasn't a perfect picture, but it, it's really a picture of the future day when the Lord Jesus will reign. Lord of all the earth, you see that in the early chapters of Joshua. And it's during that time when government, earthly government, has been entrusted to Israel, the Lord of all the earth. The God of heaven. Well, that begins when uh, Israel lost their place of earthly government. The Shekinah glory, remember we read in the early chapters of Ezekiel, 
that glory cloud that was over the tabernacle and then later over the temple, it slowly left, went to the threshold, and then outside, and finally out to the city, and out to the mountain outside of the city, and it went back to heaven. Israel was no longer entrusted with earthly government. And so from that time on, the times of the Gentiles are characterized by the name the God of heaven. Look in Ezekiel, look in Jeremiah, look in uh, Daniel, and you'll see that term, the God of heaven, over and over. It's when Israel has lost their place of earthly government, and uh, the times of the Gentiles begin. We're going to talk about that more in detail again. With the church, he's known as the Father. God is known as the Father. God is our Father. What a tremendous privilege that is. That's one of those treasures. It's better than silver, better than gold, better than rubies. God is our Father. The Old Testament only knew of God as perhaps a national father in a certain way. But for the Christian now, we know God and the intimacy of his family. God is our Father. And he wants us to speak to him and have a relationship with him as Father. During the tribulation period, remember when the church period is over formally? We're going to, there's another name that's taken up. It's mentioned a number of times in the book of Revelation. And that is a very imposing name. Lord God Almighty. The people that uh, rebel against the Lord are going to face the terrors of the Lord God Almighty during the tribulation period. Read in the book of Revelation. You'll often see that term. And then during the millennial period, the characteristic name is the Most High. So there's some dispensational names. Here's some dispensational days. And uh, there's the broad outline. Okay. That's pretty much what I had to say this first talk. Anybody have any comments or questions first to young people? And if anybody else, I don't pretend to be an expert on these things, I'm just a student. But uh, we'll do the best we can. Eric, you said that, that uh, Abraham said, didn't Abraham say, say, I've seen this day? Right. How, how did he see the day of the Lord, the day of Christ? Well, he looked forward to that time when the Lord had had his rightful place, didn't he? That's how I understand that. Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. He could see that uh, city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker was God, when the Lord Jesus would have his rightful place. That's how I understand it. That's my day. Now, Scripture often uses other terms like that day, and those sometimes refers to the day of the Lord, sometimes refers to my day. So a number of the terms, you can look those up. Uh, i trying to remember the source I have for some of those things, but... Um, there have been writings on those things. You could Google it on STEM or something. But many of the times when it says that day, it's referring to the day of the Lord or, or my day in Scripture. So it's not just the exact term, the day of the Lord or my day, but there's other expressions that refer to that same time. The Lord talks about that day. And Paul talks about that day and so on. But sometimes it has a varies in meaning. Yeah. Um... In Genesis, we find that Jehovah formed man from the dust of the earth. And then we find throughout the book of Genesis that often says, and Jehovah did this, or Jehovah said. So we find the character of Jehovah in Genesis. 
But there's one distinct place in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 2 where Abraham himself refers and addresses to Jehovah. Can you give me a thought on that? I don't have a further thought. Jehovah was brought in in the very in the second chapter, right? Or even in the first chapter. It's, God is known as Elohim. In a certain sense, if I say this reverently, Elohim is kind of the... I want to say this reverently, but kind of the generic name of God. It's the God as a creator, but not God particularly in a special relationship with man. But immediately man is formed, and it speaks about the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim. My only thought on that, Ed, is that uh, it has to do with his relationship with man, but it seems like it was lost by and large, and then it was recovered in the early chapters of Exodus and became a special covenant name. For Israel. I don't have a further thought. Maybe somebody else does. You know, the reason I, I was asking that is because the Lord plainly says in Exodus, your fathers knew me as the Almighty. Right. But it did seem like Abraham somehow had an understanding of Jehovah. That's kind of been a confusion for me. Sure. It might have been the memory from the earlier chapters of Genesis, but I don't have a further thought. Okay, thank you. A lot of details we don't understand. But. So I think we might also say that the five books of Moses, they were written by Moses sometime after many of the events in the earlier books, at least until you come to Israel's history. And he uses the name Jehovah. The name Jehovah is used in the book of Job as well. But I think it's interesting to see that there are specific places like what you mentioned that... The, the, uh, the significance of the name Jehovah or Yahweh is brought out relative to what God is going to do in his relationship with that specific people, the, the, uh, the seed of Abraham. So, Also, um, Eric, I want, you and I talked the other day. Uh, relative to what you said, we have in Scripture the Jew, the Gentile, and the Church of God. Would you make a few comments about the covenants and the mysteries. Because that kind of is at the root of some things that I want to talk about okay. this afternoon. Yeah, there are a number of covenants, and we hear the term covenantalism, which is based on the covenants of the Old Testament. And uh, as I understand it, the covenants, with one exception, which we get in Hebrews 13, Wayne, you've talked about this, but uh, the covenants have to do with the earth, and particularly with Israel. The mysteries, on the other hand, have to do with the church and the New Testament. Now, Mr. Grant makes a comment, I think it's in Acts 13 of this numerical Bible, if I remember right, I read it, and it struck me. He said, the, the New Testament is characterized by mysteries. Mysteries are things that were hidden in the Old Testament, but now revealed for in the Christian period. Whereas the covenants have to do with the earth, and have to do especially with Israel. But there is the eternal covenant in uh, Hebrews 13. It speaks about the blood of the eternal covenant. My understanding of that is that apparently the Godhead in eternity past made the decision that the work of Christ would be the basis for the blessing of mankind for all eternity. What a wonderful truth that is. That's the eternal covenant. So I think in a sense we are covered under the eternal covenant we get some of the blessings of the New Covenant, but the, all the other covenants have to do with Israel. Uh, and uh, 
we could get into more detail, but we don't have time to do that right now, maybe Dave will. But I believe that that's a, a simple uh, distinction. Again, the New Testament we noticed is in Greek. The Old Testament is in Hebrew. The New Testament has to do with many mysteries. The Old Testament has to do with covenants. A simple distinction. If we keep that in mind, we won't get confused by so much that we hear today. I want to make another comment, too. We were speaking about the dispensational names of God. Mr. Darby has a, a note that I've thoroughly enjoyed in the past. You can look it up. It's in the synopsis. I don't remember exactly where. I think it may be in Job. But when he talks about the poetic books, remember Job and then Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, those five books, he notices a progression in the dispensational names that is thrilling to understand. The book of Ecclesiastes is the, I've often said, the most elementary book in the Bible. It's man under the sun. It's speaking, Solomon is speaking like a philosopher. What can I understand about the world without going above the sun? Without a revelation from God? What can I understand? The primary name used in Ecclesiastes is Elohim. That kind of generic name we said reverently. That's used over and over. That's the primary name. It's, it's the name of God, but without a special revelation from God. Now the next step is Job. You go to the book of Job. And uh, he has some revelation. Um, they, they speak about God somewhat. But uh, Job is an interesting book. It's an advance beyond Ecclesiastes. But um, uh, we have the name Almighty, which is commonly used in the book of Job. Uh, some use Elohim. Uh, Jehovah is rarely used. It's mainly uh, Elohim and the Almighty. So it's some relationship with God. Perhaps they were... Gentiles and, uh, and a contemporary with uh, thought perhaps with uh, Jacob or so. But they had some knowledge of God, more so than Ecclesiastes. They looked to God above the sun, but still there wasn't much revelation from God. And then the next book in the progression would be the Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs you find the name Jehovah. The secret to Proverbs is that here we have the path of blessing through this world. You don't have that in Job. That's what Job yearned for. But you don't have it in Job. In Proverbs, you have that path of blessing in this world, and it's in connection with Jehovah almost exclusively. That's the name of God used in the book of, of uh, uh, Proverbs. And Psalms is a little different. Psalms, you understand, really is, a, is, a, is based on prophecy. It primarily concerns the uh, 70th week of Daniel. We don't have time to go into that. But um, in Proverbs, in uh, Psalms rather, you have both Jehovah and Elohim. When they're in the land, it's mainly Jehovah. They have a relationship with God. Israel has a relationship with God. When the Jewish remnant is forced to flee in the middle of the week, the primary uh, name used for God is Elohim. They've lost that relationship with God. When it's recovered again, when they're restored to the land, then the name Jehovah comes in again. I don't remember the exact, uh, the exact uh, Psalms, which one begins. I think it's about, what, 40, 42 or so, is it? Where you have Elohim, and it goes up to 80-some. And then when they're restored again, they're in relationship with Jehovah. They recognize their covenant relationship again. 
And then, the, and that brings out the purpose of God and the counsels of God. Uh, first, their waywardness, and then their recovery to blessing. And then the fifth book is the Song of Solomon, where we have an intimate relationship with the Son of God himself in the book of uh, the bride and bride relationship. So there's a beautiful progression there in the uh, poetic books. See? Yeah, you mentioned the, uh, you gave us a truth about the covenants having to do with the Old Testament mysteries with the new. Really, another word for testament, a better word perhaps, is covenant. So when you speak of the New Testament, it's the new covenant. Paul speaks of himself and his fellow laborers as evil ministers of the new covenant. Can you maybe explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, the, the term new covenant in a certain sense I think is something of a misnomer because the New Testament is really not the new covenant. That was, people gave us that language that uh, didn't understand the distinction. They thought the Christian was under the new covenant. We're not. We get the blessings of the new covenant, but we're not under the new covenant because to have a new covenant, you had to have, had to have an old covenant. The new covenant is with Israel and Judah. And so uh, maybe Dave's going to talk about that more. But uh, the new covenant properly has to do with Israel and Judah. We get that in Hebrews. Uh, but um, ministers of the New Testament is perhaps a better way to put it. Uh, as I understand it, uh, the fact that it's a whole new order of things that we've spoken about. And that's where this, uh, this circle comes in. And Israel is set aside for a time. It's a whole new order of things. Do you have some further thoughts on that, Steve? I don't. Yeah, yeah, good, good point. But the covenant per se, and again, the people that wrote the scriptures, we're going to find this when we talk about uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel. We're going to read it, read it in the new translation because the people that translated it back in the times of King James didn't understand it. They were covenant theologians. So they get it all confused. So we're going to read it in the new translation. It's much clearer because uh, Mr. Darby, of course, understood dispensationalism. He could give us a clearer sense of it. But um, again, this, the terms Old Testament and New Testament, as I understand it, were given by uh, uh, men that were uh, uh, covenant theologians by and large. But it's in a sense of misnomer. Do you have a further thought on that, Dave? Yeah, I was going to say that uh, the... In, in Hebrews 13, where it says the blood of the everlasting covenant, if you think of, of the whole teaching of Hebrews, you have the thought of better or something like 12 or 13 times in there. And it shows how Christ, in his person and work, his deity, his humanity, and the work that he accomplished, he has fulfilled all things. And it's good to see that when you're talking about the covenants and so forth, there are things, there are blessings that are common to all of the people of God who have ever lived. Every child of God who has ever lived from the beginning to the end is covered with the blood of Jesus. His work on the cross is what secured our safety and our place with him. But there are also blessings that are unique. There are things that are unique to Israel. And they will be brought into the blessing of all of those things according to the promises that we have earlier in the Old Testament and in prophecy, um, these things that will be fulfilled. And those are things that belong to Israel as a nation. They will be fulfilled in the remnant of Israel when he brings them back. And 
There is so much prophecy, I think, in, especially I think of a book like Isaiah that just takes this up point after point. And, but there are also things that are unique to the church. And Eric has spoken of some of those things uh, relative to the Holy Spirit and our companionship with the heavenly man. But the same work that brought Israel into blessing brings us into our blessing. There's just a difference between what was covenanted to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what has been revealed in the mystery that was hid in God. Not hid in the Old Testament. It wasn't revealed before. It was hid in God. But the same work of Christ brings all the children of God into whatever blessings it is that God has for them. I've thought of it that way. How does the covenant that was given to Noah, which is really different than the covenant that was given to Abraham, what's the significance in connection with that, that covenant to everything that we're talking about? Well, again, we're getting into details a little bit, and that's a whole wonderful subject by itself. But that's the governmental covenant, right? Whoso sheddeth men's blood by men shall his blood be shed. That's when the civil government came into play. And that's critical. Um, if we didn't have civil government, we'd get in trouble real quick. And they didn't have formal civil government before the time of Noah. But after the flood, whoso sheddeth men's blood by man shall his blood be shed. There is that civil government that came into play. And so the powers that be are ordained of God. Uh, that's that sense of the Noahic covenant. But at any rate, every one of the covenants, and there's a number of them, Again, and that's a whole subject by itself. I have back of my Bible, I've jotted down, uh, I think, eight covenants. Um, some people see more. Uh, Mr. Schofield talks about the covenants. Mr. I might say uh, Mr. Hubner, um, Present Truth Publishers, um, is it .com or .org? He, uh, he just came out with four volumes on the covenants. So uh, I haven't read through them all. I've gotten parts of it, but... It's an interesting study on the covenants. Um, but again, the covenants have to do with the earth and with Israel primarily. But you're right, Noah actually predated Israel, right? The Abrahamic covenant came after the Noahic covenant. And some people argue about whether there was an Adamic covenant, an Edenic covenant. Um, probably not, but some people talk about that. But the covenants have to do with the earth. And... Uh, and they each have a distinct uh, a principle. Was the rainbow, was that a, was that a covenant? That was a universal covenant, right? That was uh, Noah, right? Yes. And, and that was universal, that wasn't for the Jews. So, so there was a couple there. Right? Yeah, sure, that predated Israel, because Abraham came after Noah. Sure, Paul? It's a covenant relative to the earth, isn't it? Right. And Absolutely. you mentioned God's judgment. Yeah. Paul? Well, I just... Maybe a follow-up question. Is there a difference between promise and covenant? Uh, yeah, I would say so, because the Noahic covenant, for instance, is really not a promise. Some of the covenants are promised. There's a covenant of promise with the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, there's a Palestinian covenant. Um, there's a number of, of uh, the Mosaic covenant, which is was given at uh, Sinai, right? That's not really a promise. That was the law. We call that a promise. So it is different from promise, but again, this is a whole subject. And I think it's an interesting subject. Sometime I think it would be good. Maybe Dave is. I don't know exactly what Dave's going to talk about, but 
the, the main principle we're talking about here, though, is the distinction between covenants and mysteries. Um, and uh, there's a little, uh, Bruce Ancy put out a little book on the mysteries, or you can look at it in his doctor definitions. He has a nice little summary of some of the mysteries in the New Testament. I mentioned uh, Present Truth Publishers has an extensive uh, dealing with the covenants. Um, I would suggest you, if you're interested in that, to dig into that. I don't have, I don't personally feel I've got uh, my arms around it as much as I'd like to, but I think it's uh, very important to what we've been speaking about. Eric, um, can I just ask you, going back to the, the original points you were making, you uh, made your point very clearly that uh, covenantalism um, is uh, really a handicap in understanding prophecy. Is there any other uh, collateral damage from that covenantal interpretation of scripture? Is it only prophecy that is at risk, or is there anything else at risk? Yeah, you could answer that better than I could, probably. Go ahead. No, I, I, you're on the podium. <laughs> Wouldn't it be, there's, there's no millennium in the covenant theology. You said the glory of God is connected with that. God purposed that man would uh, have dominion over this earth. The first man failed. So if he doesn't have that, then Satan won. God's, if there's not a millennium, then uh, God's glory is compromised. Yeah, and it also, those three things we talked about in, in Acts 20, um, obviously you don't have all the counsel of God that's completely gone. You don't have uh, the gospel, the grace of God, you're really under law, right? Because covenant theology is really a mixture of Judaism and Christianity. And you put yourself under law again. Now that was the Galatian error, there's other errors too, but the Galatian error was a mixture of, of law and grace, both for salvation and for, uh, for our walk as Christians. So bad doctrine leads to bad practice. If I, it makes me an earthly person. If I'm a Jew... I'm looking to make this world a better place, right? But if I'm a Christian, I'm a heavenly citizen. I'm a stranger and a pilgrim here. So it goes on and on and on. The gospel of the grace of God is all mixed up. It becomes part works and part, uh, part grace. And when that happens, we automatically lose the sense of eternal security. If you're a covenant theologian, I know there's differences in how people interpret that. But by and large, the principle is that you've lost eternal security. Because even if 1% of my salvation is based on my works, I don't, I don't have any security. Because I, I, what if I'm in the wrong state of soul when the Lord comes? Or what if, uh, what if I did something bad today? Am I going to go to hell if the Lord comes? You don't have that security. And so it makes you an <coughs> earthly person with earthly hopes and uh, earthly calling. It's a mixture of uh, Judaism and Christianity. But wait... Help us out on that more. That tremendous problem. It, it's, it's huge, and I just think of the young people here interested in this subject. Good point. Yeah. Uh, this is really uh, a great starting point, but we need to be consistent and understand what is our calling, and really what is the church at the, at the very root of what you've been saying here is that it is not Israel. It's not a reconstituted Israel a rebuilt Israel. Uh, we're not spiritual Jews in that sense. And so the, the confusion of those things is very, very practical 
and practical Christianity as well. And this is really serious business. So this is not just uh, head knowledge, as you were saying earlier on. This is very, very practical. Yeah, and again, I want to emphasize something that's uh, touched me so deeply in recent years, and that is that I think our particular calling in this land is to value these things we've been talking about. Again, covenantalism has largely taken over in this country and in this world. We're not persecuted. We don't have to worry about people breaking down the door and dragging us off to prison like they do in some countries. And it's, it's right that we should pray for our brethren. But they're just worried about surviving day to day. And Vern, you this morning in your prayer prayed about uh, uh, the challenges that uh, I think you mentioned that um, if you're just trying to keep body and soul together like half the people in the world are, um, you don't have much time to dig into these things or the resources to dig into these things that we have. So our particular calling, I really believe, as those of us that sit here, is to value the whole counsel of God and all these things that we've been speaking about. Uh, the Lord put them in Scripture for a particular reason. They were lost for many, many years with the church. I love to read church history and I encourage anyone to read church history. Um, Mr. Darby made the comment, he was paraphrasing Isaac Newton, but he said, I stand on the shoulders of giants and it's wonderful to read about the exploits of some of those giants. Um, the pre-reformers and the reformers and, and uh, John Wesley and, and, and those people were dear men of God and Luther. We can thank the Lord so much for them, but they did not have the recovered truth that we have in our day that gives us this whole scope of God in this and it's so precious to the Lord's heart. He put it in Scripture. He wants us to value it and to walk in the light of it until He comes to take us home. To me, that's a tremendous calling. And I trust that uh, we each get a hold of that. I hope I was reading somewhere recently, and the commentator was saying that, you know, there are three main gifts, at least in the church. The one is a teacher, and the teacher speaks to the understanding, and that's probably mostly what we're doing, but we don't want to get hung up on that. He said, the prophet speaks to the conscience. We're dealing with things that, are, uh, that have to do with God himself. And that's, again, I think what Paul was speaking about when I mentioned that he's not going to be ashamed. When he stands at the judgment seat of Christ, he says, I'm not going to be ashamed for what I spoke and what I held and what I spoke about because he believed it's the very truth of God. And we have that privilege entrusted to us. And then the uh, shepherd, of course, speaks to the heart. And we need all three of those, don't we? It speaks about holding the truth of the, the truth, the, those that didn't hold the, didn't have the love of the truth. If we don't have the love of the truth, we won't value them. But we need to also be in God's presence and understand that these are the things that God has entrusted to us and then we do want to have our understanding enlightened. How can we walk in the light of them if we don't? But these are valuable things. And they're, like I say, there's never been a time in the history where not only the truth has been recovered, but available and, and such a, a, online, particularly I'm speaking about, as it's never been available before. Dave? Does a covenantal theologian have heaven at the end of the trail or earth? That's primarily an earthly religion, isn't it? They speak about heaven. Does he ever end up in heaven? Well, I'm sure they do. Well, I mean, they do if they're believers, of course, but right. their teaching is all earth, isn't it? It's earth, yeah. And that's why Christians are getting involved in politics, and some of the Christians you meet, they... So when does he go to heaven, then? 
I suppose at the end of his life. <laughs> but you're right, their purpose is to try to... And, and one of the principles of covenant theology, again, is the thought that uh, we're here to make this world a better place. We've got to get men, God's men into politics. We've got to, got to affect the political system. And we know that's... Uh, you look around and you say, have things really gotten better? Would any intelligent person really think that the world is getting better because of Christianity? Well, the influence of Christianity is valuable, that's true. But the influence of Christianity is waning, it's not waxing. It's getting weaker, not stronger. And that's what we expect, according to dispensationalism. That we live in a day, we live in the last days, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. We live in the last days of the church. We're looking for the Lord to come and take us home. I remember Eric Smith years ago, saying when they were translating the scriptures, he says, when the Lord's going to come, He's going to snatch us. He said, when we were translating the scriptures uh, from the original languages into uh, the Inca language, he said, we noticed that uh, the Lord's, the rapture is going to be like snatching the Christian away from great danger. That's very different from covenant, covenantalism, which says that the church, uh, the church is going to make this world a better, better, better place that the Lord would crown it with his presence. It's not going to happen. Eric, but what Dave is saying you know, is true. They don't believe anybody. Everybody's going to live on the new heaven, the new earth. Okay. Not, there's not any heavenly people as far as covenant theology is concerned. Yeah, I'm sure they confuse all those things. There's a heavenly Jerusalem and an earthly Jerusalem, right? They're both holy during the millennium. But yeah, I, I, and there's a lot of variability. I'm sure. But it's it's just confusion, is what it is. And Mr. Kelly speaks about that. He says, why do people like covenant theology? And he says, because it doesn't touch the conscience so much. You can go out as a man in this world, and Christianity becomes kind of a patch to your world, rather than your whole calling. Whereas dispensationalism teaches us that we have a whole new calling. We're a heavenly people. We have a heavenly origin. We have a heavenly hope. It's a whole different, whole different outlook than covenantalism that says, well, you know, Christianity just kind of a patch to help me get through this world and be a person in this world and get involved in its politics and enjoy its worldly activities. And, and that's unfortunately what covenantalism, covenantalism leads to. And we're affected by that. We're affected by that day by day unless we're in the Lord's presence and value these treasures that I say that the scripture tells us are better than silver, better than gold, better than rubies. The treasures of the Word of God. That's what God has for us. Eric, could you do me a favor or do us a favor? Um, you've done a good job of explaining the breakdown of dispensational truth. But could you help us to understand when we don't see this truth and we don't walk in this truth, what is the influence that happens in the church it's something that oftentimes we don't like to talk about because it sounds like we're talking about our brethren. But we're talking about how Judaism or the teachings or the law or that um, uh, enters into or has embraced in certain ways in Christendom. Could you tell us some of the ways that it has influenced Christendom so that we can see... <coughs> Why it's not right? Well, it's really what we've been talking about. Um, it affects the gospel, and we lose the assurance. 
Um, it's a mixture of law and grace. It affects our walk as Christians because we become earthly people. But uh, uh, you know, there's an interesting book. Bob Tony recommended it to me several years ago called The Seduction of Christianity. Some of you may have seen it. So I read through it. I read through it a couple times. But And what this person points out is that Christianity, the truth of Christianity, has been seduced by human psychology. Human psychology says it's really a rival religion because it's based on humanism. It's a rival religion to Christianity, and yet I don't listen to a lot of Christian radio. I listen to it in the car occasionally or look at some of the books, but they're mostly a mixture of human psychology with Christianity involved. And that robs us of our proper place, our proper heavenly calling. I don't know, Ed, go ahead, talk a little bit more about well, it. Well, I was just thinking that wasn't there the influence of Judaistic principles of one-man ministry, of priesthood, of um, the, 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 the temple or the sanctuary, these different ideas are things that the early brethren that were brought out of those things and re re revealed the truths that we hold today those are really Judaistic in principle, aren't they? And that's what I'm talking about. Is, is so often we see this in Christendom today, and there's a great, there's a, there's, I shouldn't say it's great, it's, it's a horrendous movement where the, the big question that's being asked by many in Christendom is, when did God change his mind? When, when did he give up on the Jew and embrace Christianity? And they're... They're teaching. I know because I have relatives that are caught up in this. That they're they're offering sacrifices, or at least the Passover lamb. They're keeping the law. Um, these things have filtered into Christendom. And that's what I was talking about. Is is seeing clearly that this is something that's very real. That is an enemy against the things of God. That that this whole teaching you're talking about is to keep us from walking in those things or embracing them. I came out of them. They knew me came out of this. So so the danger is is that oftentimes young people are moved by these very things and want to go back and embrace these these things that we have come out of. And it's important to see that that this is the whole reason that this teaching that that and what you're presenting to us is so important to embrace and understand because it will lead you on a straight path and not encourage your heart to embrace things you don't know nothing about. That's this is the sacred trust I tried to address earlier on, the entrusted deposit. And uh, when we stand before the Lord, are we going to be ashamed of what we've taught, what we've walked in? Or are we going to be, by God's grace, thankful that He's kept us in the pathway that's according to his mind. Remember uh, just a couple things, and then I'll close, our time's about gone, but I've appreciated, I forget where I read it, but somewhere I read a, a term that uh, is, I so enjoyed. In the book of Ephesians, there's one word that really expresses the truth of Ephesians in, in Christianity. Ephesians has often been said is the highest truth of Christianity. And there's a word in the second uh, chapter of Ephesians, we won't turn about it, but it says we are his workmanship. That word in the Greek, uh, some commentator pointed out, is poema. It's where we get our English word for poem. The church is God's poem. 
It's the highest truth, the highest blessings for mankind. And I think it's such a tremendous privilege we have. This is our calling that the Lord has entrusted us. People in persecuted lands, they don't have time to dig into these things. They're just trying to struggle from day to day and we thank the Lord for what he's given them. And there's devoted people you hear about them and we're thankful for that. But what about our devotedness? The greatest enemy of the church is material prosperity. It robs us of the calling we have as Christians. Commentators have pointed that out over and over. The greatest enemy of the church is not persecution, but rather it's it's material blessings. I should say mercies. They're not from God, they're from men. We're thankful for them, but they also represent the greatest danger to our Christian calling. And so we have a sacred trust that the Lord has entrusted to us. And God grant that we walk in. And let me just tell one story. Some people have heard me tell it before, I suppose, and it's not original with me, but I love the illustration that Albert Hayo used to give about uh, uh, Mr. Prost. Uh, that would be Bill Frost's dad. I've never heard Bill give this illustration. But Mr. Frost, um, I didn't know him very well, but I remember hearing him at Toronto conferences year, years ago. He was an immigrant from Eastern, uh, Eastern Europe, spoke with a heavy accent, and he loved the Lord. And he was, uh, didn't have a lot of education, apparently, and he would work for a man outside of Hamilton there that owned quite a bit of property right outside of Hamilton. And uh, this man that he worked for was a Christian, I don't remember his name, but he had some orchards and had some things, and Mr. Frost was sort of a handyman for him. Albert Hago tells the story, perhaps you've heard it on some of his tapes, but this man uh, was quite wealthy, and he was a Christian, and he said to Mr. Frost, man, Frost, he said, how is that little church you're doing? Is it growing? Are you supporting a lot of missionaries and so on? And Mr. Frost said, well, you know, not, not really, it's pretty small, but we try to go on and honor the Lord, you know, and well, why don't you sell out and go to a church that's really, really accomplishing things, and uh, growing by leaps and bounds, and Mr. Frost said, you know, Mr. So-and-so, I've got a question for you, you know, all these people around here, you see the city of Hamilton and Ontario is expanding and growing, and, and a lot of your neighbors are selling out and getting big bucks for land that used to be agricultural, and now they're building condominiums and apartments and that kind of thing. Why don't you sell out? Oh, no, it said, I'm not going to sell out. The more they sell out, the more what I have is worth. And Mr. Prosser, that's exactly the way it is with the truth. Well, let's bow our heads. Bless the God our Father. We thank you for this time over that precious word. We thank you for the treasures that have been entrusted to us. We pray that they would touch not only our understanding, but our conscience and our hearts as well. And that we would uh, lay hold of them and walk in the light of that which thou hast entrusted to us, and to let us take us home to be with thyself. And ourselves to be now for the rest of the day, giving thee thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. If Peter has asked me to uh, give thanks for the food, so I'll do that, and then there'll be about half hour break while people get the food ready so it'll be time to visit and I guess they'll let us know when the food is ready so let's give thanks for the food. God and Father we thank you again for what we had before us and uh, as was prayed before we pray that it would touch our heart and our consciences and make a difference in our walk to realize that we're a peculiar heavenly people and uh, we thank Lord as uh, 
how as being part of the church we're in the closest possible relationship that man ever could be with thee. That's all by grace. So help us to appreciate that, Lord. We thank thee now too for um, the food that is being prepared and for all the practical efforts that have gone in putting this together. We thank thee for all those involved and we pray for a special blessing for them. Pray for a blessing on the food and on the rest on the day. We pray thy worthy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey, what, one more thing. I, I mentioned, uh, I copied off an article from the internet. You can get it. I have the reference on the bottom, but I made about 40 copies um, of the article that uh, Mr. Uh, Stanley's uh, diagram came from. And he gives it, it's kind of a dialogue. He set it up as kind of a question-answer dialogue. Gives more detail and he gives uh, scriptural documentations for the things we talked about. So,